the point of emergence from complex systems is that you cannot predict the new system from the perspective of the old, because if you could predict it, it wouldn't be the new system. It would just be an iteration mm -hmm. of the old system. But we can at least get ourselves to the leading edge of where that's possible. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Manda Scott. Manda started off life as an equine veterinarian surgeon and is now a novelist, host of the Accidental Gods podcast, revolutionary and smallholder. Her Boudicca dreaming novels were international bestsellers and led to her teaching shamanic dreaming for the past two decades. She is the co-creator of the Thrutopia Masterclass, aiming to furnish writers with the ideas and concepts necessary to create stories that will carry us through to a future we'd be proud to leave behind. Manda's story is fascinating, and she shares insights she's gained through unconventional ways that expand how we think about how we come to know things. She talks about the need for a conscious evolution in human consciousness and how our current worldview paradigm is deeply rooted in a story of scarcity, separation, and powerlessness. But this is not a true story, and we can collectively rewrite a new one. Manda says that it's time for humanity to evolve our consciousness and understand our place in the web of life. And she believes we can play an active role in its evolution and that connecting to the web of life is how we do it. This is a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about shamanic practices, economics, artificial intelligence, mass social movements, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. And to begin, how might you introduce yourself? So primarily... I identify these days as a novelist. However, I'm also a podcaster. And so what, if I had just done a podcaster, I would probably have said I identified as a podcaster. And if I had just come in from outside, I might have identified as a smallholder. I think mostly, though, what I am, because I also teach modern shamanic practice, I did a master's in regenerative economics recently, which is how I got to know Della. I am one of those, of which you're also one, who's living right at the edge of potential extinction of all life on Earth. And it's our species that's brought us there. And everything that I do, waking and sleeping, is aimed at finding ways to mitigate that and to change the trajectory of where we're heading. Get the, there's a kind of metaphor where we're all on the bus, barreling towards the edge of a cliff, and the old white men have got their hands firmly gripped on the steering wheel. And I just want to rest the steering wheel away peacefully and turn it before it's too late. So everything I do is aiming towards creating a future that we would actually be proud 
to leave to the generations that follow us. Your introduction resonates really deeply with me because I think when I first started to really understand the situation that we're in, our current human predicament, I also felt really compelled to figure out how I could orient my entire life and everything that I'm doing towards the great turning, as Joanna Macy would call it. And as a mom, I also think a lot about our future generations and what we're leaving for them and how we're preparing them to take on the most incredible, complicated challenge that all of life on earth has ever faced. We are here and there are things that we can do that only we can do. How then do we do that? And what seemed, and this is not my idea, but it's what I came to, is that we need to make the next evolutionary step one of consciousness. So we need to evolve our consciousness and we need to do it consciously. We can't have evolution now that's the giraffe gets a slightly longer neck and then the acacia trees grow a little bit higher over hundreds of thousands of years. This has to happen in this generation and it has to happen to all of us. And what seemed to be coming with my city on the hill was that if we could get a critical mass of people into a space of emergence into the new system, then that would carry the rest. And then so how to do that? The point of emergence from complex systems is that you cannot predict the new system from the perspective of the old, because if you could predict it, it wouldn't be the new system. It would just be an iteration Mm -hmm. of the old system. But we can at least get ourselves to the leading edge of where that's possible. I want a future where your kids, great grandkids, look back at a history and look at us, this generation, the people who are alive now, and it doesn't matter when we were born, we are alive now, we've got the agency, and say, yes, we left it way too late, clearly. And they made a lot of mistakes. But when they really needed to, they got it together, they found common cause, they understood the nature of the problem, and they worked out a way through. So you talked about humans being part of this web of life and our place. What do you think is our place in this web of life? What are we here for, do you think? I think everybody is probably slightly different. I think the only way each of us can know that is to make the connection and ask the question. And I think what we're here for might be regenerating a bit of landscape, or it might be spreading a story across the world, or it might be creating a new bit of software, or it might be reconfiguring an old piece of technology to do something different, or it might be changing the nature of our democracy. Everybody can do something different. But what we tend not to do, what we need to do, is stop thinking that we have all the ideas, connect to the greater web and ask, what do you need of me now in this moment? Do it to the best of our ability, and that might involve our head mind, but we're making the connection with our heart mind. But be prepared that tomorrow the answer might be completely different. And that Mm -hmm. flexibility and resilience of, I trust what I'm hearing, and I have the capacity to give everything I've got to this answer now, and tomorrow, just take it as it comes. And that's hard. It's not how our culture, the Western hegemonic culture, has evolved the last few centuries, probably the last couple of millennia. But I think that for if we looked at the whole 300,000 years of human evolution, that's exactly what people did. We were much more connected into the web of life then and much more able to pivot on the spot. So it's not beyond us. It's part of our birthright. We just need to get out of the headset and mindset of modern, contemporary, Western-educated, industrial, rich, democratic, weird culture. And yeah. forward, we can't go back. We're not going back to being hunter-gatherers. But there must be a way 
of going forward into a culture that brings the best of us to who we are and what we're doing. And it makes me think of of something that that Daniel Schmachtenberger often says, which is that we have the power of gods, but lack the wisdom to guide that power or something yes, like that. Yes, the wisdom and the prudence of gods. Yes. Yeah. And you talked about consciously evolving human consciousness. How do we do that? And is that possible? Because one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is, is the concept of emergence and how change happens and whether or not it's something that you can actually direct or it's something that just emerges out of the complex interconnected web of life and the way things are. And Oftentimes, I think that we humans are so focused on trying to guide the path of emergence and trying so hard to make certain things happen, whether in a positive, regenerative direction or in a more destructive direction. And yeah, so just I guess the big question is, do you think that we can actually actively evolve our human consciousness? And if so, how? Short answer, yes, I do. How? Connecting to the web of life. That's, those are both the really short answers because exactly as we said, if we're thinking our way to the emergence, we're, we're going to be thinking linearly and it's not going to work, exactly as you said. Mm. If we can connect into the web, I think the web is already there. I think the web exists at possibly what our next stage of evolution is or possibly one way beyond it, but it's at least a step on the way. And that by connecting into it, by asking what do you want to be and responding in real time, is that changes. I think it changes on your physiology. I think it changes it on a physical level, on a psychological level, on an energetic level, on a spiritual level. So that we become other. Our focus of life becomes other. And that for me is a step on the way to emergence. I don't know that we can predict what emergence is. We definitely can't. I think I'm with Prigogine, who, who said that any complex system rises up to a, a maximal complexity, after which it either crashes down into extinction or it emerges mm. into the new system. And I think we must be pretty close to maximal complexity. So I think also, I think there are things that we can do that bring us closer to the edge from which the emergence is more likely than the crashing into chaos and extinction. And I think things like this, these podcasts, my podcast and your podcast, are more likely to at least let people know this is a possibility. To I think there's something about opening the doors in people's awareness to the fact that mm -hmm. this is even an idea. When our mainstream media and our political leaders are all screaming about people in small boats, it, it's you've got to take a different normative set of values and make them feel comfortable when the old paradigm is still presenting other sets of values that are comfortable because they're familiar. We've got to get people through the kind of logical gap where new and unfamiliar feels uncomfortable to the point where it isn't. It is who we are. Yeah, this makes me think about, I've been recently reading more of Ian McGilchrist's work and particularly his, his earlier book, The Master and His Emissary, where he talks a lot about the sort of distinctions between the left brain and, and the right brain and how, and obviously he spends a lot of time talking about there aren't clear distinctions, but no, no, there exactly. are sort it's of not or total, orientations, yes. right? Yes. It's not like and again, it's a metaphor. We can use it as a metaphor, mind and heart brain, perhaps, mind and heart mind. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is that 
our current society is really structured in a very left brain ish kind of way where we value logic and rationality yeah. and our current economic system is based on profit generation. It's very yeah. left brain oriented. Whereas Definitely. I think the world that many of us are working towards might be more aligned with the ways in which our right part of our brain works, which is more holistic, a sense of embodiment, emotions of love and care. And so I think what you're sharing really resonates with me. And I, I suppose this answer is likely different for different people, but I'd love to just hear from you, particularly with your experience as a shamanic teacher, what are some of the practices or the things that people can do to connect more with that right part of their brain or to connect more with the web of life for someone who's, I have no idea what you're talking about when you say yeah. connecting with the web of life. Like, how do I do that? What are some of the different ways that maybe you've experienced or um, other people have experienced? And like I said, I'm sure there's different things that work for different sure. people, but just if you can dig into that. Yeah, I think that's the key. That is what the Accidental Cause membership is all about. And it's spread over a long time. And there are some people who've been doing it for years and are still quietly cycling through. We need some kind of settling into, into our heart-mind. We need to find a technique that works for us, getting out of head-mind into heart-mind. We need to even know what heart-mind is to be able to feel that. I think we need deep connections to the physicality of the web of life. So in the Accidental Gods membership, we have whole sections connecting with water, earth, fire, and air. So that when you walk out of the door, even if you're in a city, if it's raining, you feel connected to the rain. It's not just a thing that happens. You understand your own bodily connection to it. When you walk on the earth, you feel your roots going down. You understand the life in the earth. Because if people understand that, you're not going to spray glyphosate over your suburban garden if you know that you're killing everything in the earth and the earth is alive and that you care because you have a heart connection with the earth. Similarly, you're much less likely to spread toxins into the air if you understand that every breath you take has cycled through other things, will cycle through you, and is alive in its own way. So I think we need to connect at a heart level with the things from which the physicality of our world is built. I think that's very important. I think we need to learn how to focus our intent. Intention is the focus of attention. So we need to learn how to hone our intent so that we can hold a clean, clear intention to connect with the web of life to begin with. And that, again, takes a lot of practice. And then I think one of the things we learned, I learned at Schumacher was Donella Meadows' 12 leverage points of change. Is that a familiar thing? So yeah. I thought I got my head around all of them until we got to the the, the most important. And the second to top one is change the paradigm. I thought, yes, I can do that. We can change the paradigm. Let's go for that. The top one is abandon all paradigms. And it wasn't until I was doing the work for accidental gods and really sitting, connecting, that really landed with me. And I began to understand that actually part of making that conscious evolutionary step is learning how to let go of everything that we believe to be true. Because whatever happens in the emergence it will be completely different here or it's not emergence. And yet, you've got to also let go of the bit that's telling you to let go of the bit. And so it becomes a self-iterative 
quite fast down the spiral if you're not careful. But learning to do that is worth, I think, a lot of time. But most people in my experience with the accidental gods either get stuck because one or other of the elements they find really challenging, or they get really stuck on the how do I focus my intention? How do I really learn to hone intent? We're running now a monthly meeting and, and a whole program called Intention Intensive just to help people do that because we're all setting intentions every, every way. I'll do that again. We're all setting intentions every day anyway. Whenever we do anything, we're doing it because we th are imagining how we're going to be. And generally speaking, we're doing it because we imagine that things are going to be better for us. So we, we move house or we get a new job or we do something in our existing job and we do it quite well. Or we form a new relationship or we get a new puppy or whatever. Any of those, we're building images of what it might be. But quite often in our lives, the images that we build of how things are going to be are that they're actually going to be worse. Climate change is going to destroy all of us. Or there's no point in trying to do anything different in my job because my job is shit and I hate my boss and it's all horrible. And anyway, I just need to keep at it until I've made enough to pay the mortgage, which is never going to happen anyway, as we know. Getting people to understand that we are using this intention setting by default, just by being human. We are a storied species. It's what we do. So why don't we select things that might shift us in our intention rather than keeping us going on the same loop we've already been? Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And yeah, I think so many of us are, we're stuck in a system that values being productive <laughs> and moving quickly and getting things done quickly. And so many of us yeah. are just like, breezing like just blowing past life trying to get all the things done and yeah. keep things from not falling apart in our own yeah. personal work or personal lives yeah just keep everything and juggling keep it all in the air yeah Nothing just drops. keep yeah. yeah exactly just like keep it going yeah and and then we're on yeah, our deathbed and nobody's gonna look back and go god i wish i juggled everything just a little bit faster yeah well, just right. not. and and i think being aware of death is also, if you can, there was a Castaneda, I don't really think much of most of Castaneda's writing. It's not something I would encourage people to read, but he had a concept of having death as your advisor, mm. just death always over your left shoulder. And that, just be aware, this might be the last time I put the bins out or the last time I stack the dishwasher or the last time I write an email to this person. If it is, am I doing it in a way that's fully aware of what I'm doing? Am I if you have any heart connection to something that you consider greater, is that heart connection wide open? And am I giving absolute gratitude for putting the bins out? Because it's what I'm doing just now. Therefore, it matters. And that, being aware of death, I think, for me, has made a huge difference in, if this is the last podcast I ever do, am I living here now? Is all of my attention here and now? Am I as connected as I can be so that if something arises out of the web now, I can say it to you? And if not, how do I make that? Yeah, I think that sort of awareness of death is something that changes many of us. I went through an experience in childbirth where I almost didn't make it coming out of that. And wow. that wow. certainly shifted me. Yeah. You'd like to think you don't have to experience that twice to really get it the first time. Yeah. yeah. But 
now reflecting back on it, I certainly didn't think this at the time or in the months after, but now reflecting back on it, it's it was such a blessing because I have been able to learn the things <laughs> or realize the things that many people I think don't until they actually get to that point. And so I'm well very done. grateful well for done. it. And to be at yeah. that cusp of new life and potential death at the same time, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah, the beginning was, and the ending happening, was, sim maybe happening simultaneously, and, and very good that it didn't. And it, we tend to think twenty first century, we sold childbirth, it's all going to be fine. But people forget it's a life threatening process. It's a rite of passage that, in our culture, that doesn't really have many rites of passage. Birth and death are the two that we have. Yeah, yeah. and and I'm somebody who lives in the global north, and exactly. you know what That's, lives yeah. in the DC area went to a great hospital. Like these things aren't supposed to happen to yeah. us, right? But it yeah. it it happens everywhere, and it happens um, to so many women who don't have all the privileges that that I have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to hear a little bit more about what drew you into becoming a shamanic teacher, and what does that even mean if somebody doesn't know what a shamanic teacher is? When I was nine years old. Two things happened. First is I read a book called The Eagle of the Ninth by a woman called Rosemary Sutcliffe, who was born in the 20s. She was the daughter of a naval officer. And when I read them again as an adult, they're, they're, they're misogynist, they're patriarchal, they're colonial. But the, the basic story was that a young man called Marcus, his father has been disgraced, I think dead, because he lost the eagle of his legion. And the eagle was the life of the legion. And this is true. Right? Legion lost its eagle. There could be 4,999 men, no eagle. eagle. The legion is disbanded. There could be one man and the eagle, and they'll reform the legion around it. So if you're a Roman colonialist and you're in the legions, the eagle is your sacred symbol. He'd lost it. And the story is that Marcus then with his British slave, Esca, who rides a chariot, the whole thing is full of anachronism. They go north from somewhere in England, into Scotland. I'm Scottish. I was in Scotland at the time. They go north of Hadrian's Wall into the wild lands of Scotland, and they track this eagle to this tribe who live on the edge of the sea, the seal people. And the priests of the horned moon god have the eagle, they think, and they're right. But it's in this stone dwelling with a goatskin door. And in the book, you see the priests going in, and you know they're doing stuff, and they come out, and you never get to see what happens in this place. Inside. And I, this is nine years old. I had got to the stage of being aware that the religious stuff I was being taught was bollocks, but I didn't know what else. And then there's this, these are my people. These are my gods. How do I find out about this? And I couldn't find anything. And then that summer, amazingly, my dad took my brother and I to visit the Brochs. And again, this is on the northwest coast of Scotland. We went to the one at Glenelg, which is opposite the island of Skye. And these are well, huge by old British standards, I think 70, 80 feet across, I don't remember. Beehive structures made of stone, Paleolithic. And at the bottom, they're quite wide and they narrow coming up. So there's seven stories and cattle lived in the bottom and then the people lived above them and then they stored stuff and grain and things on the way up. And then obviously lived in the middle and that was in the winter. And so this was, for, as far as I was concerned, this is where the people of the Hornboon God had lived. And I remember just walking my dad 
and my brother were talking geology and science and stuff. And I was just almost hearing their voices going, I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me how to talk to the gods. And I just sat there completely blown apart, desperate. And I was so close. It felt like the veil was just there. And I just didn't quite know how to separate it and connect. And, and really, I spent the last 51 years trying to work out what was happening behind the goatskin curtain. And training, I was very lucky that I, I qualified as a vet around the time that there was a short window, about five years, where particularly in North America, the native first peoples believed that their gods, some of them believed that their gods had told them to teach the white people because otherwise they were going to destroy the world. Guess what? They were right. And there was a, quite a lot. There was a lot of pushback. There were people amongst the tribes who said, no, you can't, they're not safe with it. And they were proved right because about five years down the line, people are charging white people, are charging other white people $1,000 to come away and I'll teach you to be a shaman in a weekend, which is just, it's either the most ancient, deepest, long-lived spiritual practice of humanity that has been around for the 300,000 years of our evolution and we can use it to ask for help of things that are very much bigger and more powerful than us. Or you can learn it in a weekend. It cannot be both. But as soon as people start setting up, I'm going to charge and $1,000 back in the 80s was quite a lot of money. I charge, pay me $1,000, I'll teach you to be a shaman. The flow of information became a trickle quite fast. They went, okay, they were right. We were wrong. You're just not fit. Sorry. Goodbye. It wasn't completely shut, but the door that had been wide open was narrowed. But I had been around in that period of five years when it was open. And what we were asking in Britain was, we're not trying to be native North Americans. Obviously, we're trying to learn how to connect to the gods of this land, but you have the tools, you have the living tools to do that. And they did, and they shared them. And once you can connect to the gods, then you can ask for help here. You don't need more input. Not that it doesn't help, but it's always there and it's always useful to share ideas and to share stories and to share connections. But once you've made the connection, it's there. And so... Fast forward a few years and I continued training with people in the UK and at a certain point, just at the turn of the millennium, just before the turn of the millennium, how do we keep this short? I, I had a shamanic experience. We can talk about it if you want, but it, basically I'd started writing novels and I was very clear that this was my apprenticeship and I was very clear that I was going to write about our shamanic past and I had made that commitment in ceremony, but it was always going to be when I was a good enough writer, which is always at least 10 books away, because this is an apprenticeship's <laughs> a long time. And then an event happened and I went and did a vision quest. I'm sure you know what those are. And the answer was to write the books. And I really didn't want to. I didn't think I was fit. I didn't think I was ready. All sorts of things. But, you know, sometimes these things happen and you just have to listen to what you're being told. And so I wrote the Boudicca books, which were, so Boudicca, for those who don't know, was the war leader who led the insurrection against the Roman occupation of Britain. So it was our experience of being colonized. And that, the final battle, she lost. And so we continued to be colonized. And then we managed to export that colonization around the world. So as far as I'm concerned, we are in the dying days of the Roman Empire. Because most of the values mm. that we absorbed are the values of colonialism that we got from the Romans and then spread them around. What I wanted to do, what came in the visions was to write the story of who we were before the Romans came, because everyone else who'd written just wrote the experience of the revolt, which happened 
20 years after the Romans came first. So there's 20 years of occupation and then the final insurrection. So I wanted to start before the Romans ever arrived and find out what, did, what was our life like? How did we live before we were Romanized? Because I, and I went round after the first book came out saying, this is who we were. This is who we could be. Every act of dreaming that I put in that first book, I had either done or seen done. That was one of the rules I was given under the hazel tree to begin with. We can do all of this. I guarantee you this is possible now. It's just we're not what the archaeologists call the late pre-Roman Iron Age. They even name who we were by the colonialists who <laughs> killed most of us. So I wrote four books that started from before the Roman invasion and went to just after that final battle. Modern shamanic practice. It's how to, I wanted to know how to connect to the gods of this land. It's how to connect to the gods of whatever land you're in, because as per COVID taught us, we could teach online because uh, I didn't want people getting on a plane to come see me, obviously, but now we can teach people in other way countries. So originally it was, how do you connect to the gods of this land, Britain? And now it's, how do you connect to the gods of the land that you're in? And in order to ask for help, that's what shamanic practice is. It's not just spinning out because spinning out is fun. It's learning how to shift from this reality to all the other possible realities, to go along paths that you map, to places where you have a reasonable chance of surviving, and have enough discernment to ask the questions that you need to ask of things that are going to answer you rather than eat you, and then come back bringing the information and be able to disseminate it into the world. So, so you need each of those steps. Yeah, this is something I think our Western industrialized culture has really just lost. Many of us don't have practices or groups of community or people where we go for this kind of wisdom. I think there's the closest thing probably is for folks who perhaps are affiliated with a religious institution, a church or a synagogue or a mosque or something like that. But we've lost these sort of traditional ancient practices that I think really did connect us with all of the other life forms on earth. And I absolutely agree with you. I think that's something that we have got to get back. And it has to be what guides the work that we do. Because if we continue to use our thinking brains to come up with all these quote unquote yeah. solutions without at least attempting to be guided by the wisdom that exists in other life forms, I don't think we're going to make it. I, I remember reading a bit about in indigenous teachings that water contains memories, that water has memories. And it does. Yeah, I found that to be so interesting because I think for me, one of the places I feel most alive is when I'm in the water. And I'm sure that's probably true for many yeah. people. Yeah. But yeah, I've been thinking and I've been spending more time over the last year or so reading more about indigenous wisdom and reading about thinkers and writers who are speaking from an indigenous tradition. And I'm just curious to hear a bit about how you've done some of that learning as well. Because I think for me, much of it has felt weirdly and simultaneously new and different, yet as if, as if I remember, as if I'm remembering something that I had forgotten, if it was yes. there yes. somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think this is our birthright. I think one thing that I find quite useful, there's different ways of mapping 
time and giving us a sense of time perspective. And one of the ones that I find really useful is if we assume modern humans have been around for around 300,000 years, we could argue a few thousand years either way, but let's just take that as a round number and map that onto a 30 year lifespan. So somebody probably about your age. You're probably younger. I'm than a bit that, older sorry. than that. Oh, are you? Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So let's find our archetypal 30 year old. And I'm speaking from Britain, so I do it from Britain. And somewhere, so 30 years on to 300,000, it's 10,000 years per year. So we are 29 years old before any of our cousins in Africa discover agriculture. Yeah, we were probably about 25, 26 before we even left Africa. Some of us, yeah, I'm talking from Britain. So some of us came across what was then a land bridge. There was no water in the way and got to this little offshoot of what then became an island. And somewhere around July of our 29th year, we get the idea that growing stuff, planting stuff and then harvesting it might be a good idea. But actually in Britain, apparently we did that for a couple of hundred years, got bored with it, went back to foraging hazelnuts for another 300 years before we decided, oh, let's give farming another go. So July, we think about farming. End of July, we go, no, we don't want to do this. Somewhere around September, we think, oh, the farming thing. Maybe we'll try that again. End of October, last day of October, Shawain, in the old Celtic calendar, is the day when the veil between the worlds is thinnest. That's when the Romans arrived. So last day of October of our 29th year. And they brought with them and imposed a religion that is based on extraction. All of the modern religions, they all have a spiritual basis, but their cultural base is extractivist. It's, I, God, give you the land to take, and please go forth and multiply and continue to take stuff that I, the God, have given you. The narrative is humans have dominion over the planet. And you can argue, and I have had conversations with people who could, who can find ways to argue around that, but that's the practical implication. That's what that mindset has led us to. So we've got two months. We've, we've got November and December, which is when we've lost our connection to who we were. We're now leading up to the last few days of December, but capitalism started about 25th of December, 26th, thereabouts, a little bit later, maybe. The, the Americas, if, if we're looking at this in person viewpoint of someone from Britain, at about the same time, that's when we sent somebody over to go and see if there was land somewhere out there, out west. It's a very tiny span of all of human history. So I think that yeah. helps me to understand that my genes are aligned to this. My whole being is aligned to this. It's only very recently that's all been disrupted. And therefore, it cannot be beyond the possibility of modern humanity to find this again. And what I find and what I find teaching is it's quite uphill for the first little bit until you begin to get to the point, because you've got to get to a point where you're in your heart mind, not your head mind telling you that you're in your heart mind. And you're actually hearing things that you can trust are not just projections. And we're very good at projecting. In the old days, Herodotus says that in Boudican times, people would come from all over the known world. So the known world, so the Romans was basically Europe, Africa, and India. There wasn't much beyond that we really knew about. But they'd come from all over the known world to an island that we now call Anglesey off the Welsh coast, which they called Mona, to the Druidic College there. And they would be trained for between 12 and 20 years. And then they would go back to their villages or their towns, whatever. And they would be the connection to the gods for their people. So even then, even in a culture where you'd grown up in a shamanic culture, it was between 12 and 20 years to really get to the point where you could let go of your own stuff. 
So it's not easy. And it's definitely not easy in our culture where everything else is on top of us. If we can learn to let go of our own stuff. And here, once we get the first authentic whisper and are able to connect with it and respond to it, then we have a door that's slightly open. We just need to open it a little bit more and be prepared to listen and be prepared to question and test and experiment until we can trust the process. Yeah, I I think so many people I talk to, if we're having conversations, let's say about like capitalism and how our economic system needs to change, so many people are like, oh, that's never going to happen. Oh, that that's never going to change. It's never going to happen. And I think it's I think part of that is because if you haven't studied the history, if you haven't understood exactly what you just laid out on this grand timescale of life, that this period that we're in, this period when capitalism was born, is such a tiny, short little piece of our history and little piece of how humans have organized themselves, then it feels because if you've grown up in, in this system, yeah, it feels like I can't even imagine something yes. different. Yeah. But just like you're sharing, the reality is that this way of living is not how humans have lived for millennia. And I also think that people realize that something about the way that we are living is not quite right, even if right. they don't necessarily understand all of yes. the kind of risks that we're facing and all of the complexities with climate change or biodiversity loss or AI or nuclear war risk or whatever, there's a feeling, I think, that many people have that there is something about the way that we're living that isn't quite right. And I think it's showing up um, in a lot of different ways in, in, our, in our physical health, in our mental health, in our relationships with our families and our loved ones. And so I don't, there's not a question there. I see Trish just processing what you were sharing. (laughs) But one of the things that also came to my mind when you were speaking is I spent some time reading Jeremy Lent's two books. Yay. I'm looking forward to the third one, eh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm really looking forward to the third one. Yeah. The the first two, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Life, I thought were amazing. And in it, he digs so much into this idea of how do worldviews form and how have they formed in the past and really digs into historical and cultural basis for how we've, as societies and as collectives, come to believe what we believe about the way that the world is and about the way that the world works. And it's a belief system. Doesn't mean it's real. But but you're right. People do. There's a famous quote, and I can never remember who said it, but it's that it's easier to imagine the total extinction of life on Earth than to imagine an end to capitalism. Yeah. Because we are locked in that system. And people, when people say that's never going to happen, what they mean is I, the person saying that, cannot imagine how it could happen. Therefore, yeah. it's not going to. We, we tend to get locked into that of if I cannot imagine something, then it is impossible. Is what's going to, Schmachtenberger says our incapacity to deal with exponential function is what's going to kill us. But I think our incapacity to understand that just because we can't imagine something doesn't mean it can't happen is what's going to kill us. Therefore, we need to let go of that. Just because I can't imagine it yet doesn't mean it's not possible. Yeah. Many of us probably couldn't have imagined a human walking on the moon, but somehow we made that happen. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I think we we are at this moment where a new world is being born. And I think part of the shift that is happening 
and needs to continue to happen is this sort of shift in worldview to one that is much more interconnected, interrelated, understands that we humans are just one part of this giant web and that we all need each other and that we cannot survive without each other. We don't make it through this without all of us. Each other being us and the whole web, not just other people, but yeah, other, exactly. the whole of the rest of life. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. Why people aren't terrified about that is beyond me. But yeah. yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, each other in my mind was like the ants and right. the branches yes. and the flowers. And, 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 and the, the cat that's come to say hello. <laughs> yes. What are some of the ways do you think that we can work towards this worldview shift? And we've been talking about this a bit, but I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to yeah, share. Yeah, I think, as we said, if you can't imagine something, it's really hard to believe that it's possible. And you have to be able to see how you get there. And you have to want to get there. If we can create visions of a near future that most people on the political spectrum, so maybe not the extreme QAnon or whatever is the opposite end of the spectrum, but most of the people who are on the bell curve in the middle could look at this future and go, God, yeah, that looks fun. Because as you said, everybody has this slight sense that we weren't just born to pay bills and then die. But that's what the system wants of us, unless we're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, is basically you're just going to run on a treadmill, hating it, most of it, finding small bits of pleasure where you count on the dopamine heads we give you from social media, and until you wear out and fall apart. And that life is so much more rich than that, potentially. It's not how we evolved to be. There's an amazing book, called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrove. Okay, mm-hmm. so the bit of th- in that where the Wendat guy, whose name I can't remember, said, Kadiarok, says, nobody tells me what to do. He's just been to France and he's seen pre-revolutionary France. And he's, you guys, really? You have kings and queens who have more than they could ever want and you have people starving on the streets. How does that happen? And then you have this bizarre social hierarchy where everybody is under somebody else and over somebody else until you're the women at the very bottom. He says, no, we don't have anybody starving. Nobody who starves. And nobody tells me what to do. And, and their lives were really rich. And the other thing that really struck me was they said that whenever anybody was taken from the tribes into the white culture, either kidnapped from the tribes or rescued back, they all did whatever it took to get back to the tribes. Because life in the tribes was richer. And they all said, mm. when asked, because there is no fear. And it wasn't that the Seventh Cavalry isn't going to come over the hill and shoot you all, because obviously that was a possibility. It's that we live a life that is not predicated on the fear of lack and separation, scarcity, separation, powerlessness, the three things on which our culture is predicated. Imagine if we could build a vision of a culture predicated on the opposite of those things, on connectedness, on there being enough. Not on I, everything I want I can have, which is most people's interpretation of abundance, because that can't happen with a planet of 8 billion people. But there is enough, and I have enough social connectedness, the serotonin meshes instead of the little never enough dopamine hits, to feel that my life has meaning. I have the being and the belonging and the sense of beyond is what gives us richness in our lives. Could we imagine a future that works where there's and a whole new democratic system, a whole new economic system that is not predicated on endless growth, different material flows, different ways of living, different ways of, of food and farming systems, because industrial farming has to go. All of the things that are currently exactly as the world is, because 
the only thing that's mattered is economic growth. If we remove that as the driver and have planetary and people thriving as the driver, what does it look like? If we can create those stories and spread them. I dream of a day where every Hollywood and television scriptwriter, producer, is completely unable to get the old paradigm scripts. Nobody will write them something that has James Bond rushing off and saving the world from the bad guys using bigger technology and getting the women that he wants. That's gone because that's old paradigm. Even the soap operas, the, I don't know, whatever it is, it's not all predicated on the old set of belief systems of this is the amount of money that we have, therefore this is the healthcare you can have. And you're all dying because you're eating the wrong stuff, but we can't address that because the insurance companies don't make anything out of it. Robert Lustig says 93% of Americans have metabolic disease. He's seeing babies that are being born obese because their mitochondria are not working because the industrial food system is killing us all because it makes people a nice profit. We have to stop that. Just, we just, it, once you see all the bits, it's easy to see that the current system isn't working. What I found was mind-bendingly hard is working out an, a route that would work that is peaceful because power over is part of the old paradigm. The whole Graeber and Wengrow thing of how did so many cultures around the world ensure that nobody ever got power over anybody mm -hmm. else was they had social technologies in place to make sure it couldn't happen. Ours are so embedded that we cannot imagine a non-hierarchical society, but we have to. And it's up to mm. people who write stuff. So scripts that are different, that are predicated on a different set of norms, novels that are predicated, songs, poems, blogs, TikTok videos. It's not just people who make a living writing. It's every single bit of creative endeavor that we do. If they were all working towards how could the world really work? If we wanted seven generations down the line to look back and be really proud of us, proud of the new way of being, not proud because we beat the Russians in the old game, but proud of who we became, then shifting social norms is not hard if enough people work to it and if you've got a template of what you're working towards. You can get people to give up smoking if you have an idea of people not having lung disease and of being able to breathe clean air. What we lack at the moment is that template of how does the world look when we're free of predatory capitalism and the death cult that keeps it going. So I think working on that is quite important. I absolutely agree. And I think, I think part of the new story is that there will be multiple different stories, right? Rather than perhaps sure. it's not one, one global economic no, system or no. one's, right? It's, there's multiple decentralized ways of being that are very intricately tied to where you are living. Yes, your but I think they have to have the same sets of values. I think there has to be a value set of valuing the web of life underlying it all. In the same way that actually there's multiple different ways of screwing each other over for predatory capitalism, but the value set of the strongest person makes the most money is what's kept it going. So I think we yeah. do need a common value set. And then obviously, yes, there need to be as many iterations as anybody can work out. Each community makes its own. But the value set underlying it, I think, has to have a commonality. And that's what would get us through. If we could sit down with people of all across all the spectra of the ways that we are currently being divided and go, okay, what do you actually care about? You probably care about your kids waking up and being able to eat and being safe and, and having a future that's worth having. How do we all, what does that look like for all? What does it feel like? 
if we were to imagine, I, I do an exercise quite often with people that I'm talking to, sit down, ground, center, come into heart, mind, and then think yourself forward to a future not very far from now, morning, next year, the year after, where you're waking up and everything feels good. You wake up in the morning and you feel confident that the day is going to be absolutely amazing. You don't know exactly what's in it, too many variables, but it's going to be good. And everyone around you is connected. You feel that sense of tribal connection of here is my tribe. These are people I can trust and who trust me. I will be able to do something that I am good at and I will be respected for it. And I will give respect to other people that I already respect for doing good stuff. And together we are working towards something that feels really worth having. How does that feel? At a heart level, how does that feel? And then once you've got the heart feeling, what does it look like? And I bet it doesn't look like we just bombed the shit out of Russia and the tech pros have just made something else amazing and we're all still plugged into our screens. It just doesn't. I think you may be, is it coming up on your 200th episode of your podcast? Something I think close to that, <laughs> which oh, is, yes. It, yes. <laughs> which is amazing and which means that you have had deep conversations with incredible thinkers and people taking action towards the emergence of a more beautiful world. And I think, like the intention of this podcast, you explore a lot of different topical areas that all intersect and are interrelated. Mm -hmm. And I think, for me, the sort of journey of trying to understand what's happening like mm -hmm. what is actually going on started when I was working uh, in education and I started to really dig into, okay, I'm working in the space with incredible leaders and incredible people who are so well-intentioned and are trying their hardest to really serve children and families. And yet, and on a bigger picture, on a grand scale, we're where we've been, like if and I'm speaking from like a U.S.-centric education system, but if you look at the ways in which we've measured where we've been, which of course is a very reductionist way of measuring what education sure. is and what it delivers, but let's say you are, you're looking at student achievement scores, even if you use the most sort of reductionist mechanisms on reading and math, we've been like, it's been like this. Right. We're pretty much where we were 50 years ago. And right. I started thinking about, like, why is that? what's actually going on. And as I dug it, I came to realize that it's, well, part of the reason is that our education system is intricately tied to our economic system, which is intricately tied to our culture, which is intricately tied to parenting, which is intricately tied to food and health and, and all these things, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it, I, it opened up lots of doors for me to then start to want to learn and understand about climate change and biodiversity loss. Because at that point, I was like, it's great if we have a great education system, but you know what, if our planet if disintegrates before the kids planet, get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then what was all that worth? And so I shifted a lot of my energy in that direction and similar things happened. I started digging and asking more and more questions and came to understand more deeply why our extractive economic system is part of what is causing the destruction on this planet and how social inequality is intertwined with it and, and all of the things, right? It's like this inter interconnected, like gnarly web of yarn. And so I'm just curious to hear a little bit from you, having had all these conversations with these incredible thinkers, and I'm sure you've been like 
processing it and putting it together in your brain. What is your current understanding of how the interrelated existential risks that we're facing are actually connected? And what does that mean in terms of how we take action on it? Because I think one of the things I've been really trying to dig into is that it appears that we need to work on all the things all at the same time. And so that doesn't mean that everybody needs to work on all the things, but that, for example, to be more specific and concrete, we can't necessarily change the educational outcomes of our students if we don't also work on our food system and the quality of the the food that they're ingesting, right? As a concrete example, how do you see these things intertwined? And then what does that mean for how we as a collective take action in the world to shift the direction that we're going? What a good question. Yeah, just just an easy, simple question. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So my first go-to is, this is back to complexity, and I would ask the web, really, because I think each of us does different things. However, I am writing a novel that's trying to step us through because getting everyone to connect to the web is probably hard. At the heart of everything is the predatory capitalist system and the death cult that keeps it going and profits from it. And that has to stop. I absolutely believe it has to stop peacefully, partly because I believe we would lose any violent revolution, but also because the idea of power over is old paradigm. We have to, you can't win in the old paradigm and shift to the new. That doesn't work. You have to be in the new paradigm for the new paradigm to move forward. We need to undo our political, economic, and media systems. And they are so intertwined. We don't live in a democracy. Mm-hmm. We, we live in a kleptocracy of absolute corruption. Anywhere you look in the world where there's what we call a democratic system, it is the best democracy money can buy, which is to say the people with the most money get the most votes. And they're generally not the general public. They're the people behind the scenes pulling the strings, fossil fuel companies. Mm-hmm now the tech bros, whatever else. That whole system has to go. It rests on the fact that currently the the dollar is the global currency. If we woke up tomorrow and dollars are worth nothing, all those people with power would have no power. If we take a step back and look at money, money is an idea. Money particularly is an agreement that you and I make here. There's this piece of paper with some green writing on it. It will buy you a loaf of bread. One of these is worth a loaf of bread today. Tomorrow, it might take 10 of these to buy a loaf of bread, or a loaf of bread might crash in price, it might only take half of them. We have an agreement that this bit of paper that is otherwise worth nothing has value. We now live in a system where we don't even have the bits of paper. In, in the UK, less than 3% of the money in circulation is actual physical money. 97% is virtual money that has been made up by the banks out of nothing and then sold to us at a profit. And we are all in the hamster wheel of being born, paying bills until we die, to gather in more of that money and pay it back to the banks so that they've got their profit, which is why the system has to grow. If they're lending us money at interest and there isn't more money flowing into the system, we can't pay them the interest. The whole thing is a giant pyramid scheme. And it was mm. Ford, who was a massive, nasty, patriarchal racist, but he said, if people actually understood how money was made, there would be pitchforks on the streets. And I, that was a long time ago. 
why are people not writing over the fact that banks make money out of nothing and sell it to us at a profit, and we let them, and we spend our lives paying off that profit. So that whole system has to go. The question is, how do you unpick it? Because you can't take one bit of it, and the others will not let one. It's a three-legged stool, and all three legs have to be removed at once. I have in the book, which I am editing as we speak, so it's changing under my feet, but I have an idea of how we could fork democracy, which is to say create a, a parallel democracy, run it and let people see that it works better. We have democracy by consent. We have governance by consent. If we all decide that the new system is better than the, the one that's existing and choose that as our governance, short of putting tanks in the streets, the old system ceases to be relevant. It's the same with money. If we were to create a new system, money is basically a way of accounting for exchanging and storing value. If we were to create a different system of accounting, exchanging and storing value, the dollar ceases to be worth anything. And uh, since the dawn of money, David Graeber of the book that we've already discussed, The Dawn of Everything, wrote an amazing book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. But what he didn't get to the bottom of, I don't feel, is that from its beginning, money has been backed by violence. If you live in the island of Britain, nobody has any money, and somebody turns up from Rome, brackets with a lot of hefty blokes with armour and swords behind them and goes, see this little bit of silver with somebody's head on it? That's worth one of your children. And you're going, I'm sorry, part. And you're going, yep, I could buy one of your children with that. And you're going, not for me, you can't. And he's going, see the guys with the swords? Yes, we could. And you okay. And then you go, I've got some silver out back. And he goes, no, you, that's not worth anything. And you go, pardon? And he goes, see the guys with the swords? You go, okay, I'll put a face on it. Look, I could make a little face on this piece of silver. And he's going, nope, sorry, guys with the swords, it has to be that face. And if you make something that looks like that face, we'll kill you and take your children. Money has been backed by violence from the beginning of money. That's what it was for, was to take something that had silver, has what value has silver got? I put a face on it and suddenly I can get you to give it back to me in exchange for food, shelter, the things that I need to give the blokes with the swords to keep them on my side and make sure that you do what I tell them. How could we find an economic system not predicated on violence that we all agree on? That would be the first job of any sensible democracy. And at the same time, how do we create a media system that we can actually trust? Because at the moment, the media system is a propaganda system. The only difference between us and the Russians is that the Russians know that their state broadcaster is telling them lies. And in Britain, some people still believe that the BBC is telling the truth. I can't think why, but they still do. And we all have the newspapers that we read until, I think, with most people, something comes where you read something, you go, I know that's not true. Objectively, mm. what you're just trying to tell me is untrue. And at that point, I will move. How do we create a media system, probably online, that everybody can trust in an era where we all know that chat GPT may not be able to create a total version of nature that is fake today? But we're in exponential shift. I'm sure you listen to Schmachtenberger by next month or next year. It will be able to. Yeah. So those three things have to happen together. And I think the window within which they happen, because the existing system might put tanks on the streets, but at the moment, it's more likely to put troops on the streets and those troops have kids. And if their kids sit down in front of them and go, mom, dad, you're on the wrong side, they will gain traction. At the point when the police or the military sit down and join us, then we have won. If the police and the military are all AI-controlled drones, that's not going to happen. So the window is very small, but it is still there and it is still possible. So do you think this means mobilizing 
mass social movements? Like, how do we get there? And how do we, and will that work in our current society? Because it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I've read quite a bit about the sort of history of social movements and strategies that have been, quote unquote, successful or unsuccessful, however you might want to define it. But something I've been thinking about is that there's certainly enormous amounts to learn from our historical social movements and how they achieve the incredible things that were achieved, whether it's related to racial equality or the passage of environmental laws that prohibit pollution in various ways or whatever it might be. But we're living in a time where you mentioned AI. And so we're living in a time that a very small, tiny percentage of mostly white men hold all of the power and the money across our all of our societies. And AI is a technology that is going to exponentially double down on all the things that we're already doing. Right. And so how like how do we will a mass social movement if we're able to pull that together? Because I think Jason Hickel talks about this in terms of degrowth, and he talks a lot about ecological movement coming together with social justice movements coming together with the labor movement. And that's really what's needed in order to make a bigger shift. But how, yeah, I guess I'm asking a big question, but I'm just curious as to, will that work? Do you think that will work given our current paradigm and the ways in which power is resting with a very few people who, like you said, could operate AI-controlled drones that take us all out? Sorry, it's very grim. It is very grim, but I think there's a number of answers. The first is, if it doesn't, then we're all dead. If it does, maybe we're all dead. But I'd like to go down trying to find the better future that our hearts know is possible. Also, in shamanic terms, we have an elder group meeting once every once a month or so of people who teach shamanic stuff in this country. It's only four of us, but it's it's just useful to check with other people who are not within our own circles, but still talk the same language. We are finding there is more help from the other realities now, like coming out of nowhere, even when we haven't asked for it, than we've ever experienced in, in multiple decades between us of teaching. I don't think that help is being offered so that we can pile ourselves off the edge of the cliff. I think it's being offered because there is still a window. I think that window is very narrow, but I do think it's still there. So then my question is, if I believe that, and if I'm wrong, I have lost nothing by giving everything to trying. Mm -hmm. If I haven't given it everything and we fail, I'll feel bad. If I've given it everything and we fail, then I tried my best. That's, That's always been my view on everything that I do. So let's try. And you're right about social movements. The thing about all the previous social movements, gender equality, racial equality, sexuality equality, environmental movements, not one of them was trying to change the fundamental value system of the system. They were just changing the franchise. We'd like to have, like women have the vote. The brilliant idea. And it was fought tooth and nail. You just look back in Britain, particularly in Hansard, and people were saying, this is the end of civilization as we know it. If you let women vote or you let people with not white skin have a little bit yeah. of power. It's been every time they said end of civilization. But actually, all you were doing, we weren't saying, let's stop capitalism. You're we just saying, Let's let a few more people become part of the capitalist system, hey? And this is, let's stop capitalism. Yeah, quite clearly, we have to stop capitalism. We have to start something else. So 
if it has to happen, and I believe it does, if I still think it's possible, I think we have to give people a vision of what the world is like on the other side of capitalism. And we have to do it in ways that feel real and where people can see the path through. And then we gather it. I think, it's, I think it is still possible. I think most people are decent. Most people want a decent future for their kids. Most people know we're heading for the edge of a cliff, unless they've got a financial reason not to believe that. It's very hard to get a man to believe something if his entire salary is predicated on him not believing it. But most people understand this. What they don't have is a vision of what could be different. And we know human neurophysiology, when we're under stress, our creative capacity narrows. We need to be in parasympathetic hegemony over sympathetic in order to be able to think creatively. I think there are, there's two angles. One is the spiritual of we have to create the energetic space in which that amount of creative thought can happen. And those of us who have the privilege to sit at home doing podcasts, that's our job. Create mm -hmm. the energetic space where people can settle in themselves and have that reflexive capacity of maybe there is more to life than being born, paying bills and dying. And if there is, what do I want that to be? And then give them the ideas. Because at the moment, the ideas are do more of being born, pay bigger bills, get more stuff, and then die. That's the idea system that is around. We need to very quickly create a new, whole new subset of ideas that goes, yeah, that was the old way. The new way is I make connections with people I really value. I find a new way of exchanging financial value. I just think we have to get rid of the dollar. We have to get rid of the old system. We have to find a new way. And it's not that hard. There are models of it all over the world. It's just that one of them hasn't risen up yet. And a lot of them are still predicated in old paradigm thinking. But it's old paradigm thinking. It's not hard to think in the new paradigm of money. It's not hard to think in the new paradigm of democracy. That is happening all around the world. And it's not hard to think in terms of trusted media. Audrey Tang in Taiwan is doing some extraordinary stuff democratically and in terms of media. Tristan Harris and Azar Ruskin are doing extraordinary stuff on their podcast, Your Undivided Attention. People are thinking, very bright people are thinking very carefully about this. Schwartenberger, with his Consilience Project, thinking extremely hard about this. There's a lot of super bright people working on this. What we need, I think, is to get a narrative, a story, a movie, a TV serial, the Game of Thrones equivalent, but set in the, to give people a model to work towards. So that's really what I'm working on now, because you work in this field. You Clearly, you said this is where you're at, and yet you find it quite hard to imagine the next step. So we need to show yeah. you what the next step looks like and feels like. And then I think you'll give it everything. Yeah, but Buckminster Fuller, I think, said in order to get rid of the old system, you got to build the new system. And part of that makes the, the old one obsolete. Obsolete, yeah. The book will be out next year. Maybe I can come back and talk to you about it when it's out. Yes, that would be, that would be lovely. Because it's the first in a series. It ends the night after a general election. That is the general election in which the 4K of democracy happens. But I had to do it. It's 180,000 words of setting up the movement, how that movement arises, what that movement looks like, how it functions, how it begins within the current system to work. Because you can't take people and go, okay, this is how you are working. Tomorrow you're working somewhere so far out of that that you don't recognize it and you don't know how to do it. You can't. You've got to iterate. Yeah. towards it. So how do we do that fictionally in a way that doesn't feel to people like they're being patronized and talked down to? They're gathered along with the energy of it and create something that feels like, God, yeah, I'd like that, even if you're not usually in this field, which mm. is quite a big ask wow. and quite hard. Yeah. 
what an incredible and, project. And maybe I won't and, succeed, but I am I'm trying and we'll yeah. keep trying. Do you yeah. have a title for the book yet? Current Any title is Any Human Power. That might yet change, but there's a, there's a beautiful Ursula Le Guin quote which says, we live in capitalism. It seems undefeatable or something like that, but then so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be done and done by people. And often the agency of that begins in our craft, the craft of words. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I think that might be a good place to end it then. This has been wonderful. I have also felt that there is this missing sort of vision for this positive future. All of our media, all of our stories, like you said, whether it's television, movies, it's very easy to create and imagine the dystopian, but we don't have enough out there of the more beautiful world that we all want. And I think what I am hopeful about is that we've done this before. It's not going to be a version of what we've done before. It will be a new version that takes into account all of the amazing things that we've learned, all of the amazing creations that we've made in the time since we used yeah. to live in those more sort of connected ways. But it's somewhere, I think, in our muscle memory for how, yes. to, how to live in a more collective way that is more in, in harmony with, yes. with all of Earth. I guess to close, who would you like to platform on the podcast? Yeah. And so I had a new idea on the way through. So there's a lovely young woman called Zineb Mui who's doing a PhD in California on exactly this, how to spread new emergent paradigms. She set up uh, a group called Youth by Youth, which was education of young people by young people. I think she would be amazing. I also would still like to suggest Angharad Wynn, who is Welsh and is really embedded in the mythologies of Britain and very connected to the world of life and is another shamanic teacher. And the third person that I think would be really interesting in your podcast is Paddy Lafluffy, who lives in Canada. So he's probably closer to your time zone. And he's just written a book called Building Tomorrow, which is an economic model of, it's still, for me, it, it's still slightly located in the old paradigm, but it's a definite improvement. And it's, it's not impossible because what he does is he says, this is the idea and this is ways it's already happening. These are companies that are already doing the Future Guardian model, for instance. And that would be a really interesting conversation to have, I think. I can connect you to all three of those okay. people. So. Yes, that would be amazing. I'd be so grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. It's Thank been you a pleasure. So much, Brilliant questions. Thank you. such a pleasure. Thank you. Super. If you like the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app, or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.